There has never been a bet that Joe and I have had that I have ever lost. So I find that hard to believe. Good morning, everybody. I'm Sarah Miller from Wisnet. With me here today is John Patterson. And our guest today is Mandy Freilich. That's right. Right, Mandy? Am I saying it right? Okay, good. Like I practiced for a while. Um, Mandy is a consultant, author and speaker. And Mandy, I'm actually going to kick it over to you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you used to work for one of our Wisnet member organizations, and then you made a, made a shift. So tell us a little bit about where you came from and what your work is now. Sure, absolutely. So um, I started out as an elementary teacher, um, and I, I taught in Nina, Menasha, Wrightstown. I taught a few different places. And then I moved to being a tech integrator for Oshkosh, which was my favorite job ever, was uh, not only working for Oshkosh and Dave Gunlock, but also um, being a tech integrator was one of my favorite positions. Um, and from there, I moved to being uh, a director of innovation and technology for the Ripon Area School District. I retired just in time for the pandemic. <laughs> Apparently, I saw it on the horizon and retired. And now I'm an education consultant full time. Excellent. That's where I, you know, I'm trying to like piece back where I've seen you in, in different things. And it was that Oshkosh piece that, that just triggered me. I went, oh, that's, that's exactly it. Um, my first question, and it's going to have this really long preface because that's what I do. Um, I was listening to or reading, I think it was Seth Godin recently. I'm not going to be as, as coherent as he is, but he was talking about, um, where he was making a point where we are today is the result of a whole bunch of dots on a timeline. Imagine that kind of a thing, but that we can only really understand that looking back, you know, we can't predict the future or where we're going to be or what our next job or vocation or anything else is going to be. Um, but if you do take some time to look kind of back, there were some times when things maybe pivoted a little bit or turned a little bit. Tell us how you got into education and maybe what some of those, some of those pivot points were, um, where you bounced off a wall and got into something else. Yeah. Uh, so originally I was not, I'm, I'm not one of your traditional people who got into education where I grew up like teaching my teddy bears and all of that kind of stuff. I actually very much wanted to be a lawyer my entire life since I was very, very young. And, um, I ended up getting married very young and having kids very young and decided that I wanted a more family friendly vocation is basically what happened. And uh, I started kind of teaching my own kids like you teach your own kids when they're little. And it just dawned on me one day, I could do this all the time because I loved that feeling of that light bulb going off and when they would get something and actually be able to do it. And uh, so that's actually what got me uh, into education. Um, and so I, I got my bachelor's degree with, with four kids. I got all of the rest of my degrees, my master's degrees, my EDS, all of them with four kids and, and, um, ended up in, in just a profession that, that I love along the way though, there were some, some things that happened that 
uh, kind of set my course in a little bit different direction. And you guys know that I was predominantly tech focused for a really long time. Um, but there were some pieces of the uh, that happened to me as far as that impacted my mental health when I was a teacher. And um, one of them being that I burnt out in my fifth year of teaching and, uh, you know, just really um, wanted, well, it wasn't my fifth year of teaching, but it was around my fifth year of teaching. It was a little bit more than that, but I, I burnt out and wanted to leave the profession, but I couldn't because I had just spent all of that time getting my degrees and spent all that money trying to get into the profession and um, had four kids, needed the, the insurance. And so, um, you know, that burnout is, is part of the catalyst for me switching roles when I switched. Uh, and, and so one of my concerns when I started that process was looking back on it, you know, there's a lot of people that we say leave the, leave the education system, the education ecosystem, it doesn't really matter if you're a teacher after like five years. Um, but my concern was actually the people who had to stay. And so I don't want anybody ever leaving, obviously, but I was really concerned about the people who were burning out and actually had to stay because they didn't have a choice to go someplace else. And, and they were then subsequently working in our ecosystem in whatever capacity that was. Um, and that was one of the initial uh, initial areas that was a trajectory for me to get move more into the mental health uh, section, I guess, of what I talk about. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's been a little bit. There's lots of dots along the way for sure. <laughs> I was just when you were saying that in, in relaying that you were saying it was about five years in and stuff like that. Uh, I just realized that I am now on like the anniversary of the day that I walked into my job burned out and said I quit. Um, that was yeah. 2005 and I had nothing. I mean, I, you know, two kids and family and all that other stuff, but it was mm -hmm. just like, I mean, and I was seemingly at the top of my game, but I was just done. Um, mm -hmm. That was the, yeah, that was a Monday, this Monday in November in relation to Thanksgiving, I just said I, I'm out. Um, and it was, scariest moment in my life and the best and one of those pivot points for me too so mm -hmm. um, yeah interesting interesting that's a really yeah and I hear that I hear that a lot from people so so you you bounced into the is that when you bounced into the technology stuff or were you kind of technology curious about that time or just you got that shift in there yeah so I um I left the classroom uh yeah. and I was fortunate enough to get um, a position with the Oshkosh Area School District and as a tech integrator because I had been just, like you said, I was curious about technology. I was always using it with my students because I loved it. <clears throat> and um, so I was fortunate in that way that I loved technology because obviously we know not everybody does. And so I was, I was able to move. The pivotal point for me when that happened was when I was a teacher, I never said to myself, I'm super burnt out. Like I never said that. Uh, what I would say was people would say, you're going to get burnt out working as much as you're working. And I would say, you can't get burnt out doing something you love. That was always my response. And the fact is you can, you, too much of anything is still too much. It doesn't matter if it's something you love. And so I, um, when I moved from Nina to Oshkosh, 
prior to, to being at Nina, I was very angry all the time. And I was angry at the administration. And I was angry that parents weren't so more supportive. And why wasn't this teacher doing their job? And, and I, was, I was just annoyed all the time. And I, I never with my students. My students were amazing. And I had actually looped from fourth to fifth grade with my students that year. And all of my same students came with me. So it really should have been my best year ever because I had the absolute greatest class and they all came with. And when I left Mina and I went to Oshkosh, I was still super angry. And one day I actually had to look at myself and say, okay, my job, my district changed, my role changed, all of the people changed. I, I, I can't be angry at administration anymore because those, they're all different people. And I had to actually look at myself and say, this is actually about you. And it's a super humbling experience to figure out that you are essentially the cause of all your issues. You are the catalyst for all your unhappiness. And that was the point where I had to make a decision. Am I going to continue like this? Or am I going to make the decision to try to be happy and love my job again? And that's, that was like the pivotal change point for me. Yeah, wherever you go, there you are, right? doesn't matter if you change those mm-hmm. external circumstances. Believe me, I've been telling John for over a year, like Mandy Freilich wrote a book about mental health and adversity and trauma. And I want to read this book and talk to her and how can we fit this in? Because I think this is a super important topic and one that's also just not talked about first of all in our society there's just so much stigma around mental Mm -hmm. health issues and certainly not in the field of like education whether that be with teachers or administrators or technology folks um i think honestly technology Mm -hmm. folks might be at the bottom of the list when it comes to let's take care of your mental health um how, how did that, I mean, you, you've, you've, you've talked a little bit about your own experience, but what made you take the leap from here's what I'm going through now? I want to, now I want to write a whole book about it. Like what, what inspired you to dig so deep on that? Yeah. So there was, um, so what, again, so many things that happened at once, um, my first book is The Fire Within, which is a kind of a compilation of stories from teachers who had gone through adversity and use what is called post-traumatic growth, what they've learned from that with their students. Um, the idea of that book is really to talk a little bit about post-traumatic growth, secondary traumatic stress, and start to destigmatize educator mental health issues. That was kind of the idea of that. However, I actually wrote my second book um, I had my second book partially written first. So I was actually two, writing two books at one time. Um, and Divergent EDU is really what, um, there was a piece of that that was a catalyst for me because Divergent EDU is based on um, an organizational structure I developed for supporting teachers in innovative thinking. And it's based on, loosely based on the idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so it is um, a hierarchy that the base of the hierarchy, the foundation of the hierarchy is climate and culture. And within climate and culture is basically um, teacher engagement. And, and I, 
I changed it later to educator engagement. And when I say educator, I always say that means everybody in the in the ecosystem of education. Like, so it doesn't matter if you're a programmer, you know, like it doesn't matter. You are you are in the education ecosystem. You work for an educational entity. And um, and what I learned was uh, I, I went on later to define what engagement as far as educators actually means, but the, the boiling it down to the basics is that it doesn't mean it's how it's not how much you do, um, because that will be the first thing people start to argue. I work all the time. It's not how much you do. It's how much you love what you do. And, and when you start looking at mental health issues and teacher engagement, you have uh, the, you have a lower potential of thinking innovatively if you don't have the capacity to think innovatively because that capacity is taken up by mental health sure. issues. And so, um, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, you're involved in technology and you're involved in innovation and you talk about mental health, like those are two different sides of the world. And I'm, I, I always say, actually, they're so closely related um, because if you're looking for innovation, and you have a bunch of disengaged people, you're gonna have a really hard time getting that innovative thinking. And that's sort of what Divergent EDU was based around. So I had the, uh, you know, the trying to destigmatize the mental health and the innovation piece. I really dived deeper into the mental health uh, area for two reasons. First of all, um, uh, well, for, for multiple reasons, but one of them was I started talking more about it and I got a couple different reactions because this was like quite a few, this was a few years ago already. Um, some of the reaction that I, I got was you shouldn't be talking about that, which for me and my personality just fuels me to talk about it more. <laughs> and I actually had a board member, I, I presented on uh, educator mental health to a board member one time who said to me, I am very uncomfortable with you saying mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm like, mental health issues, mental health issues, mental health issues is better. Is it any better now? Like I I'm going to keep saying it because until you get more comfortable with it, we're never going to be able to destigmatize it. Your, your feeling of discomfort is part of the issue that we can't continue to talk about this. And um, so that was, that was one of the, you know, one of the things that happened was people either said, um, you know, I have this too kind of quietly, or they just flat out said, I'm uncomfortable with this. And that I, I felt like it needed to be talked about. Also, I was watching different things happen to the people around me. Um, one was a paraprofessional who came in one time. She had just come back from the hospital for getting a tetanus shot because uh, a student had bit her until it bled. And when I asked her to see it, she pulled up her sleeves and there were bruises all up and down her arms. And I said, oh my gosh, what happened? And she said, my students are just very physical. And, and it dawned on me at that point that even putting aside the fact that some of our students, that's how they communicate and they can't help, the fact, can't help it, the fact of the matter is is that we still have people walking into schools getting assaulted every day. And whether it's intentional by that student or not, it doesn't matter. If you just take the human 
that is being bruised every day, they are still being assaulted and we're not giving them the appropriate support to be able to deal with that both in, you know, uh, it, maybe, maybe it's hiring additional people to tag team. Maybe it's giving paraprofessionals more professional learning opportunities so they know how to, so they're better equipped to dealing, for dealing with students who are physical. There are other things that we can do and we're not doing it. And, and so that was really a piece of it. There was a piece of it of, in uh, being a part of an active shooter drill where they brought in, uh, you know, the police with airsoft guns that were shooting at teachers and watching teachers crying and traumatized because of this. And, and all of this stuff was adding up to, to being, yes, there are issues outside of our organizations that can cause trauma and disengagement, no doubt. But there are also issues that we could be addressing inside our organizations as well in order to support people. And so that's really where some of those some of those pieces started to come from. What do you, I have, I'm, John, I'm just going to totally override you for a second. I have like eight Please questions. Do. Um, Please do. I'm, Please I'm do. wondering, I, th this is my anecdotal contribution here. Um, my best friend is a kindergarten teacher and I, and I won't say what district she works in, but she has talked about exactly that being traumatized by the active shooter drills that she has to go through um, in her school. She's also shared with me just what I would consider kind of secondary trauma of trying to teach and nurture children who have endured trauma in their own lives outside of school. Um, well, what do you think, first of all, I think those are, you know, those are two different things, but they're also, they're also different flavors of trauma. What do you think the difference is between people who are able to achieve post-traumatic growth and people who, who don't change in a positive way after that. I mean, what, from a personal level here, and, and I, I, I asked my husband if it was okay to share this before this conversation, because I knew what we were going to be talking about. My husband has had PTSD for the last 15 plus years. He was in Iraq and did two tours of duty. And this is just something we lived with for a really long time. The post-traumatic stress of, of a Marine versus an educator is a little bit different, but when we talk about things like post-traumatic growth, and this is not the first conversation that I've had about this recently, part of me is like, why can some people get there and other people can't? Like, what, what are the factors there? And maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm really curious about what you've seen in your own, in your own research into this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I can tell you what I know. So one of the things that got me interested in secondary traumatic stress, and it's just what you said. So second, for anybody who's not familiar, secondary traumatic stress is when you're working with somebody um, who uh, has gone through something traumatic, they're regularly talking about it. You start to empathize with them uh, on kind of, you know, because you're very, very empathetic. You work in education. So that's probably the case. And then you you develop the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder from working with that person um, or even being with that person. You know, Sarah, if like you were regularly hearing stories of your husband and things like that, you could actually develop secondary traumatic stress from that. And, um, and so you don't actually develop PTSD from it. You just get the symptoms, but it, they can, it can be just as, as serious. Trauma in itself happens 
when um, you experience uh, something difficult and you're, you don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with what it is. And so a lot of times what I've noticed, the first thing that happens when we start to talk about trauma is people want to talk about their trauma. And some people want to talk about their trauma in a way of comparing it. And there really is no comparison because it's, it's very much, um, personal because some people are going to be able to cope with things that other people can't cope with. Uh, for example, I grew it's kind of that age old question where I grew up in an abusive household. My, my experience and my ability to cope and grow from what happened is very different from my siblings who had the same experience. And so, you know, what, that was one of my first questions was how does that happen exactly? And Basic, there are a lot of different pieces of that, but one of them is your resilience level, obviously, you know, like how resilient are you? And that can be from multiple different factors, everything from your personality to your past experiences. There's actually an inverse correlation between resilience and post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth is the amount of growth that you do after an adversity, after a trauma. If I am more resilient, I am less likely to have post-traumatic growth because I don't have as far to go. I'm more resilient. Um, whereas somebody who's less resilient has, um, has the opportunity for more, for more post-traumatic, uh, post, uh, for the growth. And so um, now the question, it still leaves the question, why do some people who are not resilient grow? And why do some people who are not as resilient not grow? Mm. So they stay kind of right in that. And that, again, is kind of back to your, your background, your personality, your willingness to be self-reflective. There's a lot of like, um, you know, kind of that internal and external motivators. How are you motivated? Where is your internal or external locus of control? If you have a very external locus of control and you're constantly saying, well, I'm lucky or unlucky, um, this happened to me because somebody else did this, you're less likely to have post-traumatic growth because you think everything is everyone else's fault. And so um, there's a lot of pieces to that, but basically, uh, the the more resilient you are, actually, the less likely you are to experience post-traumatic growth. Interesting. When you were talking about teachers experiencing the trauma of, or the experience of active shooter drills, it, it I kind of just had a breath and goes and thought, you know, hey, we're not doing that right now. Um, but what might be happening, what is happening inside schools today, inside of a pandemic where teachers are playing the front lines here, um, that's going to be equally as, as troublesome going forward. What do you, how does this apply to the pandemic piece and what are you hearing or seeing or is it too early? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of things. First, I'm always very clear that educator mental health and disengagement at mental issues and disengagement was something that was happening way prior to the pandemic. Yeah. It's gotten more attention now because we wouldn't talk about it before. And now it's so bad that it's in our face and we don't have a, we don't have, you know, a, ch a chance not to talk about it. Um, 
there are a few things. First of all, I find the educators who are either surviving or even some thriving right now. I mean, I've, I have spoken to educators who are like, I love this. I love online teaching. Like I've gotten really good at it. You know, I can, I can do this. I have talked to, they're few and far between, but they are <laughs> out there. Um, you know, the, they had a few things. First of all, they had, um, they, they already had protocol in place for self-care and that they, they already had figured that piece out. And so that was one thing. Um, another thing is they had elements of personalized learning already embedded in their classrooms. Uh, and the reason I, I think this is just, just an assume an assumption. Um, I think that's because the best practices in online learning are actually very close to what your best practices in personalized learning or project-based learning would be. And so they had those, they had that piece. They also had in at least an interest or a willingness to learn technology. And all of that was supported by the, the district, you know, and so they had a very uh, robust support structure from the district. Teachers who are surviving or thriving had those three pieces that I'm that I'm noticing. And I work kind of with districts, like I work from Philly and Pennsylvania to California. So I do like across the country. It's an amazing part of my job as I get to see outside of Wisconsin. Yeah. That's, and, that seems to be kind of the common thing. And you're going to have a lot of work ahead of you for the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years yeah. out of this. This is just, going to be long lasting. Yeah. It's going to be. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the hard parts is, as we just start realizing how long this is going to last. Um, right, Sarah, right. Sarah, do you have any, Sarah, do you have any more serious questions before I start to lighten it up almost? <laughs> like 10 more serious questions, but no, I mean, not within the scope of this conversation. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll follow it up. We'll, we'll learn more and we'll have you back a little bit later. Um, what do you do, Mandy, what do you do to keep yourself fresh on a, on a personal level amidst all of these weird times? <laughs> well, um, I was, uh, just, I was just about to blog about this. Actually, I had a, like a mini meltdown last week because I was on about, you know, my 23rd day of working 12 to 15 hours straight. And I hadn't taken a day off and I can't even remember when. And, um, and yet I talk about all of the self-care and all of these types of things. And, uh, and the one thing that I think, uh, is really important to understand is that when I talk about self-care, it's not that it's easy for anybody. I don't, I don't know anybody that says, oh my gosh, I just have all this extra time to practice self-care. Like, I don't know anybody who, who says that. And so it's not, it's not that it's easy to get in. And so I have, um, I work with a uh, personal trainer, actually, uh, who keeps me very accountable for, for what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's one way because I'm terrible. My worst piece, um, you know, I, I, I've kind of uh, dialed into four types of self-care. There's physical, spiritual, emotional, and intellectual. So those are the four I try to, I try to hit. I'm the worst at physical self-care because I just, I, I don't, I don't like yoga. I don't like running. I don't like a lot of things that require you to move. So um, I have to actually have somebody to hold me accountable to that. Um, 
I do meditate. Uh, I, I've learned after, uh, you know, after time that meditation really does, it has so many amazing benefits and, um, including which the, the newest one that I read lately, which I thought this is reason to meditate alone is that it can make you look younger. And I was like, Oh, uh, all right. Well, then if there was no other reason to meditate before there's one now, um, so I, I try to hit all of those kinds of pieces each week. And honestly, the, the thing that people usually miss about self-care is that even prior to practicing self-care, you have to implement boundaries. You have to. And, and if that boundary is I'm stopping work at 630 and I'm not doing any work after 630 and whatever doesn't get done, doesn't get done, then that's what your boundary is. If it's, I'm not answering emails after five o'clock anymore, then that's what your boundary is. If you don't set healthy boundaries, self-care is going to be a lot more difficult. That's the first thing I'm going to start doing too, because I know I, in the past I've set boundaries around some things, but I haven't looked at them under this new kind of work environment and living environment. And so it's it's time for me to kind of renegotiate some of those things with me and make sure that I'm... I'm good coming up in the next few months, but that's, uh, yeah. Okay, here, here's where we get to the surprise. Um, last week, we had Joe Sanfilippo on the show, and I still haven't even published it, you know, so um, if you weren't there, you didn't you didn't hear this, this piece. Uh, Sarah at the end said, you know, we're going to be talking with Mandy next week, and Joe says, you know, would you remind Mandy that she owes me $20? <laughs> What? Yes, For yes. What jo do I owe him twenty dollars? I, I don't know. I don't know. But he said, you know, hey, while you got her on the phone, while you got her on the sky with the Zoom, remind Mandy that she owes me twenty dollars. There has never been a bet that Joe and I have had that I have ever lost. So I find that hard to believe. Okay. So you know and in this this, you know, and I thought, yes, I'm gonna ask about this, but I, I'm not interested in getting Joe any money. I'm not interested in making this even. I want him to owe you something now. How might we go about this? I, I, well, I, I have Joe. sat in his key <laughs> I have sat in his keynote, so he probably owes me time back. So. Okay, there you go. <laughs> that might be yeah, that, no. that might be enough. Just just you know what? Sit there and listen to Mandy for about forty five minutes. Just straight. You can't say anything. <laughs> You, you can't, you can't, you can't fidget. You can't play with any of your go crickets swag or anything like yeah. that. You yeah. Can't, I don't go know crickets. if, I, <laughs> if, if you guys don't know, Joe is, he is, he is the real deal. Joe you Sanfilippo don't... is and I, you know, like I, uh, I know a lot of these kind of edgy celebrity people out here that go out and speak and do all these things. And let me tell you, he is the real flipping deal. That guy I adore him. He is amazing. So, we do too. <laughs> so I, 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 I watched him on the sideline for a long time, you know, and I watched this and I'm like, watch the Edu celebrity Twitter piece of the whole thing. And, you know, I've seen it happen so many times and, you know, people get to the top and then they burn out or whatever, you know, it, there's, there's a neat little pattern there. Um, and I, I don't know how many years ago this was. Uh, but Diana Laufenberg, who's a close friend of mine, she moved back to Wisconsin. She lives kind of right around where his district is. I said, Diana, would you come 
and we're going to just go talk to Joe for a little while. And what I want is, is this guy real? Cause it, 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 I just, it was like, I, you know, I haven't ever sat down with him and, uh, you know, had a beer or had a dinner with him yet, but it, he just intrigues me. And so Diana went up there and I went up there and I, it was like noon on a Friday. And really I just, one hour of your time. I just want to say hi and stuff like that. We sat there and talked for four hours and <laughs> it was just, it was amazing. Um, just sitting in his office talking actually it was amazing sitting and listening to Diana talk with Joe and I just absorbed all of that good stuff. But he is, you go up there and you, you, you feel the same things that you see in social <laughs> media and it's fun. Um, yeah. He's a good dude. So. He absolutely is. So t the, the $20 is a mystery. Um, we're going to have to figure this out. It is. I'm trying to think of the last time I saw him. We were uh, presenting at a conference together, I think. Oh, right as oh. the pandemic. Oh, where were we? We were in Michigan, METC maybe? Yeah. As we was... were there, it closed yeah. early. Yep. Oh, wow. Uh, so we were at, I mean, were you there, John? No, I, I wasn't, but I was watching. We we were trying to make the call in our conference at the exact same time, so I was watching other conferences yeah. and what they were doing really close. I'm like, wow, they seem to be going for it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So Joe keynoted that conference, and okay. I was presenting at it. And as we were there, one day we woke up and, or uh, no, I was in the middle of a, I was in, in the middle of one of my sessions, and they came in and they said, after this session, we're closing the conference. Everybody go home. And it was, it was so weird. And uh, yeah, that's the last time I saw Joe. So he did buy me lunch. I mean, the potential is there that he wants his $20 back because having lunch with me wasn't worth the $20. <laughs> but, <laughs> otherwise, I'm not sure what the 20 would be for. Oh man, we're going to, he, he's going to have to pay for this. Cause I, I just wanted to turn it around on him and we'll figure this out. <laughs> Mystery. Well, time spent in his keynote is time I'll never get back. So exactly. I'll have to tell him exactly. that he owes me for that. The, the okay. mystery deepens. The mystery deepens. It does. Sarah, do you want to close her up? Yep. Um, Mandy, thank you so much for being with us today. This was just a fascinating conversation. I'm I'm glad that we finally got to sit down and, and chat with you. And thank you so much for the work you're doing and honestly just your willingness to show up and have those those hard conversations because I think it has to start somewhere and every little bit um makes a huge difference and and I think your work is really like very meaningful. So I I, I appreciate I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Thanks for having me. For everybody else, we are going to take the next two weeks off. Um, and our final show of the year is on December 8th at 10 a.m. And that will be with our very own CEO, Dave Lois. And we will be taking questions from the audience on that one. So if there's anything that you would like <laughs> to ask Dave about Wisnet or himself, um, you can submit those questions ahead of time to me at Miller at wisnet.net or you can show up and ask him live. Um, you can register for that event on our website at wisnet.net slash events. And that's it for me. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them as well. You can find me at www.mandyfraylick.com or I don't know if Sarah and John typically take questions, but you'd be welcome to ask them too. <laughs>